Hi everyone, I'm Erin G and this is Alt Text. So first up, just some quick housekeeping. This is going to be the last episode for this season, season two. I will be back after taking a few weeks off and going on a well-deserved vacation. So I really wanted this last episode to be a bit of a banger. And then second, I also just launched a new newsletter that produces, curates, and amplifies news and ideas that impact Canada's BIPOC tech community. It focuses on the change driven by founders, operators, investors, and other innovation leaders, and aims to shift the focus from occasional celebrations of diversity to a continuous showcase of BIPOC leaders. And this is a recognition that diversity is not just a checkbox exercise, but it's really a strength that fuels innovation and progress. You can find more at intertech.news. That's I-N-T-E-R-T-E-C-H dot news. So getting on to this episode, this week I'm joined by Washington Post tech columnist Taylor Lorenz. Prior to working at the Post, Taylor was a reporter at the New York Times, the Daily Beast, Business Insider, among others. Her work focuses on the internet and the people who shape it, from both founders and CEOs to content creators. Taylor's first book, Extremely Online, was published in October 2023, and it chronicles the history of the internet and the moments, both viral and contentious, that have led us to where we are now which I would argue is a bad place. Taylor and I chatted about her book, about how the internet and the broader culture has changed since some of these events have taken place, uh, making money on the internet, and of course, the Kids Online Safety Act that is going through Congress in the United States. So here it is, my conversation with Taylor Lorenz. want to get things started by talking about your career and how you got to kind of be the quote-unquote like historian of the internet. So I know that you've written for like a lot of publications and you've kind of focused on internet culture the entire time. And so why internet culture and how did you or and did you have any trouble like trying to convince people that that should be a beat? Yes, (laughs) a lot. I still do. Um, Yeah, well, I started, um, God, over a decade ago, almost 15 years ago uh, on Tumblr. In 2009, I started as a blogger. Um, I didn't have any experience in journalism or background in journalism. I didn't study journalism or anything like that. Um, And I just felt like people were writing a lot of things about the internet, not from the perspective of anybody that actually used the internet. Um, And so I kind of wanted to write about the internet from the perspective of somebody that actually used it and like knew what it was really like. At the time, there was just a lot of really bad coverage, especially from the mainstream media, which there still is, but less so, I think, than back then, where it was really condescending. People were really hostile to millennials, which I'm a millennial. And so, yeah, I just, I started blogging and then I I started working in social media. I was a social media editor for years and I would write on the side. I was always trying to make this a beat, but it wasn't, it was so hard to get places to consider this a beat. I mean, it still is so hard and 
it's not taken seriously as tech reporting, which is frustrating, but I think that's also because it's a very female dominated space. Um, but yeah, just kind of kept working for bigger and bigger places. And now I'm in the mainstream media, which is weird. I don't love it, but it's fine. Um, it's fine. You know, it, I'm glad that I'm able to kind of speak to an audience that doesn't normally, uh, you know, think about these things, I guess. Yeah, I think the perspective of writing about the internet as someone who uses the internet is really important. And like, I, you know, being in Ottawa, it's the capital, you know, very similar to Washington, where lawmakers and decision makers don't seem to be using any of these like things themselves. And so they're making these laws that where it seems like they don't actually use the internet or Instagram or all these other platforms. Um, and so that's why I thought your book was really interesting because it really just like chronicles all of the kind of like major touch points. And my personal favorite chapter was the one about Lonely Girl 15. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> TVT. I loved, I remember watching that when it was Me too. out. It was like a big thing in school. Yeah. And it, it really kind of like paved the way for that type of storytelling that I think kind of has turned a little bit into the am I the asshole kind of thread on Reddit and also um, the one we're seeing now with like who did who what man did I marry type mm -hmm. stories who, who that f did I marry I know I watched mm -hmm. the entire all 50 parts and I watched all of her all of her TikTok lives oh wow Wow. <laughs> that's a lot of content I couldn't do it but I mean I it was like nine hours but I watched it on double speed I just had it on like a podcast like for days um but yeah I mean I think there's so much amazing storytelling on the internet I think that the who the, the f did I marry is very similar to like although it's a real story but it kind of reminds me of that Zola Twitter thread that went viral and became a movie mm -hmm. um I mean there's just so many so many amazing stories on the internet and some of it's contrived and some of it's real. And I think that's, what's kind of fun to follow along. And how do you convince people that it is important? Because like, if you think about it, like influencers in theory are meant to be people like you and I, but they're also creating this like culture online. Yeah. I mean, it's an uphill journey. And I think that a lot of people in establishment, media and politics just don't take the internet seriously you hear this kind of rhetoric from them a lot like the internet isn't real life or just log off or whatever they don't realize like how enmeshed our lives are especially the younger you are the more likely like your social your social life is completely sort of intertwined with your online life and identity um i try to do stories where i explain the stakes i mean every story that i do i don't just do like trend explainers it has to every story i do has to sort of say something about the broader um, landscape of tech or media. Um, and so I think it's really important to kind of have that second part that's like, here's the stakes. Like there's either huge amounts of money involved or political implications or cultural implications, yeah. like kind of justifying to people like this really matters and here's why you should pay attention. Yeah, and I think that people, well, generally people who are online maybe understand that perspective a little bit more than like the general population or the everyone else who's not online as much as say you and I are who yeah. see these things happening in real time. Um, and so I know that you wrote about a lot of creators 
you know, like Lonely Girl 15, kind of out of the, the zeitgeist right now, but then you went into the YouTubers and into the TikTokers. And did you receive any pushback from them after your book came out? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think. I didn't, I wrote such a sort of a dry business history. I didn't, I think a lot of people, you know, this weird, the, the, like, this one guy at Wired who I really like, but he's he's the older, you know, he's of the boomer generation was like, you know, I thought you you wrote a business, but he was like kind of like indignant and like seemed mad that I wrote a business book, um, even though this is a tech, non I'm a business reporter writing for the business section. And I'm I was like, yeah, it's a tech nonfiction book. And he's like, well, I thought it would be gossip about, you know, like the TikTok content houses. And I'm like, who wants to read that? Like, that's not interesting. And also like, you can find that stuff on T pages on Instagram if you care, but mm -hmm. like, I'm not really here to kind of, I don't cover like that sort of drama of the industry. The only time I cover that stuff is again, if there's some sort of like tech or cultural or uh, media implications of it, like a story there. But um, I think people just have a, such a misunderstanding of my work because a lot of people don't read my work and they only know me through kind of mm. like this public persona that they've like heard about me from or something and so they don't actually engage with my work and it's very funny because like fox news requested a copy of my book which i happily yeah. sent them and i think they you know the right-wing media was like trying to get like outraged but every time they have to actually engage with my work like there's not it's not like that controversial i guess mm -hmm. so i didn't i had some people that were kind of like oh i wish you included like xyz you know there was so much more that got cut i originally my book was twice as long and there's so much oh, wow. internet history that was sort of you know it just didn't make it in a lot about early days of reddit um and 4chan which i mentioned some of it but it's like there's a lot about i think more of the community side i really focused on the creator industry um mm -hmm. but yeah i mean i mean both of those could be books in the in and of themselves there is and actually andrew morantz wrote a really good uh, book uh, at the New Yorker um, about sort of like early internet communities like 4chan and something awful and things like that but um yeah it was yeah I, I don't think I got into anything like controversial that people were mad at the biggest thing that made people mad is that I accurately described Gamergate as a misogynistic harassment campaign and of uh, course the perpetuators of that perpetrators of that movement don't agree with that characterization yeah, of course and I'm sure that maybe that was something that Fox News could have glommed onto you if but it's like did. even then it's not controversial it's like that is no. a fact you know like it is a fact at this point and um you know i think especially looking back in the past decade there's been books written of, about that specifically you know mm -hmm. um but yeah i just think most people when they're forced to actually read my work realize that it's not as inflammatory as the right-wing media constantly paints it as <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the their anger is more towards you as an individual or, yes. or as a talking head than as yes. an indictment on your work. Yeah, yeah. L literally go touch grass, you know, find a hobby. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've got sewing, for example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, a lot of what you wrote about, I can really kind of see the direct line from that thing that happened to now. And one of those things is the start of ads on websites and so you talked about heather armstrong uh of deuce.com who put ads on her website to monetize because it was basically a full-time job they needed she needed some extra money to support her family the pushback that she got and then there was like the evolution into um 
Instagram and TikTok influencers with their uh, monetized content. But I also sort of see if that there is a bit of a line to the kind of current media landscape and the inability or ability to monetize the, those platforms. Yeah, it's a different, I mean, the thing is, is back when Heather Armstrong was monetizing her blog, this was in the beginning era of digital advertising on the web. And actually ad rates were quite low because people didn't understand that like advertising on the internet was valuable. It was sort of considered secondary to print advertising, which was much more sort of, um, you know, the rates were higher and stuff. Um, and then you really saw the glory days of digital media emerge around the turn of sort of the 2010s, the big early days of the 2010s. You saw the rise of all these digital media sites that relied primarily on digital advertising. And then that, of course, got all sort of cratered out by Facebook and Google, who really subsumed the ad market. And now that's not a really sustainable advertising alone is not going to sustain a web media business. So you need to kind of diversify. And I think a lot of content creators these days have diversified and they recognize very early that advertising is just one piece of the pie. And they do a lot more, you know, they do sponsored content, but they're also more likely to develop their own products or do these sort of like long-term partnerships with brands that are not so much like ads or sponsored posts, more of a like they're a creative advisor to the company or whatever, mm -hmm. things like that. So I think that that I think the monetization structure has changed a lot as the web has become devalued. And I think it's just that's going to accelerate with AI because fewer and fewer people are going to visit websites. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing with this abundance of journalists pivoting towards their own newsletters and then becoming mm -hmm. their own. They will hate this content creators uh, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, they Casey Newton was on a podcast with Neelay Patel and he was talking about, you know, that there are newsletters, there's, you can make a living off of them, but you really need to like know who your audience is and find your niche and like be able to bring those people with you and like find the people who trust you. And I would say that's slightly different than like a content creator on like TikTok, but not entirely it's the same. I think it's the same. Honestly, that's the same. I mean, with newsletters, you have that direct connection with your audience. You're not relying on an algorithmic feed, but you are relying on the mailbox and that's its own sort of filters. And um, especially platforms like Substack, which Casey just left, but you know, Ghost is also what she's on now is also building a lot more social functionality. I mean, if you, what content creators are, are independent media businesses and mm -hmm. there are independent media businesses built around journalism, cooking, fashion, lifestyle, like, it, you know, they're all independent media. And um, I think journalists are very hesitant. I mean, this is sort of this long-term issue that journalists seem to have where they often, I mean, I have a lot of, I don't, the journalism industry is very self-important and they mm -hmm. like to think of themselves as this like elite group where we went to journalism school or we work for XYZ paper and therefore we're authoritative. And they, they're very negative about anybody that's too tied to the digital world. For instance, I started as a blogger. I remember for years, there was so much conversation of, oh, are, are journalists, you know, are bloggers journalists or are, <laughs> are people that write for the websites journalists? I remember when I wrote my first big feature for The Atlantic, I didn't care if it went in print ever. I didn't even know The Atlantic had a print product when I started pitching them. I thought it was just a website. And um, I tweeted about it. And this big time tech reporter quote tweeted and was like, you didn't write for the real Atlantic. Like you wrote for Atlantic.com. And I was like, what's the real Atlantic? Like, what are you talking about? Like, 
the website is where people read things. That's where something's going to reach millions of people, not some like print thing that gets sent to like what, like 50,000 people and they're probably going to throw it away. Like that's irrelevant, you know, uh -huh. but it's this like prestige. It's an obsession with prestige and old media and old institutions that journalists have. So you see that as well with the rise of the content creator industry, where a lot of independent journalists they are content creators. Casey actually is very smart about this and he would never say something like this, but you see it from a lot of people like that are more aligned with these elite institutions like, oh, they're not real journalists, you know, uh -huh. like they're content creators, they're a newsletter writer or something. And it's like, uh -huh. I mean, Casey bucks the trend because Casey, nobody does journalism like Casey. He's a yeah. phenomenal tech reporter, but um, there's a lot of great journalists doing reporting on social platforms and um, I just think you're going to see more and more. I think that's going to be such an irrelevant and stupid question in mm -hmm. five years, you know. In terms of, you know, pivoting to other journalists, pivoting to other platforms, you know, some there's kind of this rise of the TikTok news anchor. And so, like, how can someone, a user of TikTok, how can you scroll through a feed and, like, d distinguish between, like, some whether or not someone's, like, a news anchor and just, like, parroting back something that they've read or whatever versus original thought and like actual journalism or well, is you there know a whether they wrote the actual articles they're talking about if they're doing actual reporting or not mm -hmm. most of those people on tiktok they're just reading stuff and by the way you've seen that on most platforms right the the big accounts on twitter that shared news early none of those people were journalists they're just aggregating links and sharing links and so it's like oh yeah i'll subscribe to brad jaffe or something i mean he's an actual yeah. journalist but like these are people that like gain i mean yashar ali is a good example he's done some journalism but he's kind of like more of a content creator figure but he mm -hmm. aggregates the news very well you see tons of people like this as well on instagram i mean there's the shade room or you know all these other places where they aggregate news from around the web and that they serve a valuable function, right? They sort of curate news for people to watch. I don't think anybody believed would assume that they wrote the, every single article. And the Shade Room now does write articles, but um, you know, is doing that. Same thing with on TikTok. I think that people come to trust these people. I mean, the, the, as news sources, when they're not doing original reporting, I think the problem with it, a lot of the TikTok news anchors is that they they are really bad at citing sources. So mm. um, you know, on on Instagram and Twitter, where you saw this before, and same thing with newsletters, you have people with huge newsletters that just aggregate news, they're often linking to the original source. On TikTok, you have, um, what's that guy? Oh my God, he always puts the, it's very close to his face. Remember, he made that video with his girlfriend that people were like, it looks like a hostage video, oh. something with an M. Yeah, he's I huge. I can't remember his name. He doesn't he just talks to the camera and parrots things he's read, but he doesn't cite any of his sources. That's a huge problem mm -hmm. because people on TikTok have no idea where this information is coming from. And you see a lot of these TikTok news anchors constantly parroting extremely wrong information. The ones that are more responsible, like under the desk news and things like that, like they've actually worked with media organizations and they cite their sources. But you have to be careful, you know, yeah. Um, and same thing with Twitter. There's tons of anonymous Twitter accounts aggregating links, but at least there you can see the dubious websites they're coming from, you know? So yeah. Yeah. It's, it feels a little bit like this is like the modern RSS feed. Mm -hmm, totally. <laughs> yeah. But like somebody else is curating it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, the, the, I will the, say, wait, sorry. One other no, thing. Okay. I really hate the notion that only the journalist should be the one talking about their story. Like I've seen people mm -hmm. get really mad that somebody is making TikToks about their story. And it's like, no, 
it, it's this it's like for some reason they understand it on twitter like journalists on twitter are like happy when someone shares their story but then you see people get frustrated about tiktok like, oh this tiktoker stole my story and use it i'm like often they'll have the story right behind them you know it's like yeah. no they're just talking about it you want people talking about it the more people talking about your story the more impact it has so it's good i hope every TikToker on the planet aggregates all my stories. It, it, it ultimately, it doesn't directly impact traffic, but people search for the story. People are more likely to read the story and it has a bigger reach. Yeah. And it, that probably goes to two problems. One, the TikToker not accurately citing where the story's from and who it's from. And two, the, the person getting upset thinking that they're taking credit for it. Yeah. If they do that, totally fuck that them. You know what I mean? They shouldn't be taking credit. But I think a lot of people are earnestly want to talk about a story. And I see tons yep. of journalists or tons of TikTokers like, oh, my God, I just read this in the Wall Street Journal, you know, and they'll have it. They'll have the headline up behind them, uh -huh. um, which is great. That's we want people sharing our work and talking about it. Well, it this is exactly how like the industry is going to survive if it, you know, yeah. it's about challenges. And so like people need to know the news. And yeah, I find that a lot of journalists really poo poo TikTok and as like not a real place and i'm like well this is where people are getting their news and like they're like they well, it's the not real thing. news no they do it with every platform i mean let's not forget they did it with twitter they did it with tumblr when i first started calling um covering youtube people would make fun of me and say oh you just write about the site for cat videos i don't know if you remember <laughs> that was the reputation of youtube for a while yeah. and it's like if that's what you think it is you're an idiot and and that's what a lot of mainstream journalists thought for years. And then they still talk about TikTok as the dancing app. It's like, guys, you, please log on to the app once. That's mm -hmm. not a representation of what it is for. Yeah, definitely not now. Maybe at the beginning no. of the pandemic. Sure. But even then it was like not, you know, like, I mean, it was much more of a dancing app then for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. look, it was built around Musical.ly, which was a lip sync, heavily lip sync act. But like, there's always been discourse. I mean, I posted about the 2016 election on musically and uh -huh. there was there has always been people sort of covering news on these platforms yeah for sure yeah just yeah people need to relax <laughs> <laughs> um and so with a lot of these issues that on the internet then comes policy changes and so you talked about um paid ad content with influencers and the changes made uh, at the FTC in terms of disclosures. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's interesting how, can you talk a bit about how that has kind of influenced content since uh, it's, those changes were instilled and, yeah. you know, instances in which maybe content creators are unaware of these, these rules or, and how they kind of get into sticky situations. Yeah, well, I mean, in 2017, the FTC issued this sort of decree saying like, hey, influencers, you have to label sponsored content. There was this plague of unlabeled sponsored content. And they went after a couple of sort of high profile people, specifically the Kardashians, um, for not disclosing paid ads. When they made this, everybody thought, oh, my God, this is the end of influencers. It was so stupid. What happened is actually sponsored content just got incredibly much more normalized and actually became this aspirational thing. So then you saw the rise of fake sponsored content, which is a lot, still a big problem, like especially for luxury brands, which is people pretending that they have brand partnerships for prestige when they don't. Um, I think now, I, I mean, I, I think the peak sort of sponsored content era was the late 2010s. Now we're seeing, again, a lot more diversity in terms of revenue streams from content creators. Um, I mean, I talked to the FTC people 
all the time. They're they're very underwater. Like they don't they don't have the ability to enforce ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the stuff that they sort of declare. So it's like sure they might go after like Sony or you know these big brands, but they're not going to like generally police the small stuff. And these ad deals are now structured in such complicated ways intentionally to mm. avoid disclosure that it's just really hard for them to police. I, I don't know where that's going to leave us. I think we also have zero media literacy anyway. You can literally tell people something's an ad and they don't, they still don't even recognize it as an ad. It's bizarre. So we're just in a very like muddy world now where it's really unclear sort of what's sponsored and what's not. But ideally sponsored content should be labeled as such. It, yeah, I find that more now than anything, it's more reputational harm than mm-hmm. actual real yeah. other consequences, which I guess if it's going to affect their bottom line can have similar context, similar results. Totally. Like yeah, I think exactly about Chris Olson and his Australian trip. Oh my God. I mean, case in point, <laughs> case in point. And it, that's the thing. It's like, I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I haven't talked to Chris about that incident, but like, I do think that, like you said, they've realized that there is reputational harm. Like it's like you seem stupid now. It <laughs> makes you seem sort of shady. Um, most people, uh, yeah, I think most people do disclose some in some capacity or they'll be like, I have a partnership with XYZ. Mm-hmm. It's just that they're not necessarily, they don't need to disclose all the time. If they have a long-term partnership with the brand and they're not being paid specifically for that post, they don't necessarily have to disclose. It's just all very messy and complicated. But um, but yeah, I think that the, the main impetus for disclosing is reputation. Mm-hmm. But people don't care, by the way. People don't care if things are sponsored. They'll still buy it. You can be like, I'm working with this brand because I believe in it. Mm-hmm. That's why you should buy it. People will still buy it. So in, in terms of changes to contracts, if someone's under a contract and they have to do like six posts a month about these products or a brand, would would each of those have to be disclosed or is it just? Well, it. I mean, it depends. You have to look at the contract, but yeah. yes, I mean, probably, yes, I would assume so. Because the contract is specifically allocating money for, spe- for X amount of posts per mm. month. That's a very standard, I mean, that's the type of thing that you would have seen right back even 2015. That's a very mm-hmm. standard agreement. The thing is, is that now it's a, I hate even talking about this stuff because this is so like, irrele- it's not, this is not how most influencers monetize. Like the notion that influencers and content creators just like do ads and oh, they're mm-hmm. secretly whatever. It's just, that's not a thing. Like most of them are invested in their own businesses. As soon as they get a little clout, they're launching their own brands, which by the yeah. way, they don't have to disclose because they own those brands. If they have a long-term partnership, it totally depends. Are they the creative director of the company? Like Alicia Keys or something was like the creative director of Apple. Like that's a very tenuous partnership. Who knows? Like it's just, it, it, again, it's so stupid and irrelevant, but just, I I don't even want to get into it. But like, (laughs) the point is, is like, I don't even know what the point is. Read my book and you can talk about that moment (laughs) in 2017. The main thing in 2017 was like, everyone was like, oh my God, as soon as influencers have to disclose that they're doing SpawnCon, the industry is going to die. And the truth of it is that nobody cared. Nobody Mm -hmm. cared that their entire feed is SpawnCon because they trust these content creators. And for the most part, nobody recommends a brand or product that they don't actually like or that they wouldn't work with for money. Almost no one. I mean, honestly, my whole career, I don't even know if I've ever spoken to anyone where that was the case. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I wonder if that changes in terms of like celebrity endorsements or anyway. Well, celebrity endorsements are totally different because they shell out for things that they don't care about all the time. 
because they don't have that, that. I mean, look at Paris Hilton. Like, yeah, they don't have they, they have a very different relationship with their audience. Right. So like content creators, they have that like parasocial bond that people have. And so so much of their relevance is based on their authority in a specific area, skincare or something. Right. right. So so they wouldn't just do a partnership with a brand that they don't believe in because again that like you were saying earlier that would question their that that would hurt their reputation uh -huh. say that wasn't a good skincare product now that's hurt their reputation whereas celebrities that people don't really look to celebrities in that same way so they can be like posting spunk on for random shit and people are like okay sure you know okay. like you're starring in the apple commercial <laughs> I, who knows you know yeah. Um, but I really do think that like the majority, I mean, the way that people make money now is not ads is maybe 20% of a lot of it, the, it's smaller and smaller. When you look at the business models of these content creators, so much is based on revenue from these platforms, whether it's YouTube AdSense, sort of directly, like they're not doing, it's not sponsored content, advertising revenue, revenue, um, or subscriptions, like people like Casey Newton, mm -hmm. um, Merch. and Patreon merch is huge. Product lines are huge. I mean, launching your own product is the way to make money. And mm -hmm. that's what all of these creators are generally working towards. Yeah. It's nice. It's a nice life if you can get it, I guess. <laughs> totally. I know the Nelk boys made something like $71 million in 2021 on their seltzer. Wow. That's you know, crazy. Canadians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. Huh. It's so crazy. And they've never been monetized. So they like they've never received a dollar from YouTube. They don't do ads. They don't do spawn. Con. They might do spawn con now, but I don't think so. I think they only do. They only post about products that they've invested in or that they own. Huh. That's interesting. I like that there's so many different business models. It's a really good like like a case study on like the number of different business models would be interesting. Oh, a hundred percent. I wish that like some business school would just like dive mm -hmm. into all of it. You know. Um, because it's, it's a lot. There's a woman, Brooke Erin Duffy at Cornell, who's a researcher who does a lot about like female lifestyle influencers. She's done a lot about the different business models that they have, but I think traditional media companies could learn a lot from the way that these content creators structure their businesses because yep. again, they're independent media companies and some of them are very successful. Um, yeah, and I sort of unique. definitely agree. I have a friend who's like trying to launch a he wants to do like a, a new like media thing. And I'm like, well, like do some research. I don't know what to tell you. He's like, well, or I don't know that newsletters are like the way to go. And I'm like, let me tell you, a static website definitely is not the way to go. No, it's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, journalism is impossible. I, I don't know. I mean, Hamilton Nolan, who's a fantastic writer, wrote a great piece today about how like journalism needs to be like publicly. It, it needs to be invested as like a public good and mm -hmm. we need public media um which i agree with but i don't think in this political climate we're ever gonna get people hate journalists so yeah yeah did you see that that report from the columbia journalism review that said a couple of cities and i think pennsylvania gave free like mem uh licenses for their web like website i don't know it's like a philadelphia something and like 44 people took them up on it no yeah it's depressing yeah, no one wanted it it's free really news depressing. i mean yeah. people don't want news that's what's really hard and they certainly don't want news that challenges power or authority yeah it's yeah. depressing we live in a bad time right now <laughs> <It's not> great <laughs>
so moving on to <laughs> we do have a lot of skincare influencers and that's great <laughs> i've never spent so much money on drugstore makeup and it's all good <laughs> same i know i'm buying stuff off i i've gotten like which is so crazy because i never leave my house like ever <laughs> like, I, like i work from home so like mm -hmm. I have all these like work clothes that I never wear. And I follow a bunch of people now that are like fashion influencers. They're like, get your spring coat. And I'm like, oh yeah, I need that. I'm like, okay, Taylor, you don't leave your house. Please remember you do not need a new coat. So you're crushing the 75 hard style challenge is what you're saying. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I love her. <laughs> um, and so in the section about Logan Paul, uh, you talk about his video where he goes into the Japanese, Japanese suicide forest. And you mentioned that the YouTube liaison to top creators told Bloomberg that the platform didn't realize that YouTube creators were <laughs> global stars, which seems yeah. strange since it's a, a website, um, which is a bit of like a mirror centricism. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> so what they didn't, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I think what they didn't realize, and that was such a pivotal year, I think 2017 is when things really changed. Mm -hmm. um, that's when you started, that's when the PewDiePie story came out in the Wall Street Journal too. Um, that's when you started to see content creators get mainstream media coverage and go viral, where like that previously, had Logan Paul done that in 2014, nobody would have covered it. I guarantee mm -hmm. you it would have just been on like some blogs and nobody would have cared but it was like content creators were just starting to break into the mainstream in that year still very early and that's that changed people's perceptions and i think actually at youtube they didn't even realize that that had, that that shift yeah. was happening until it happened right and so if that story happened now do you think it would get the same amount of coverage yeah I yeah it would get way more coverage way more coverage because people would be I mean, I just think there's so much more of a microscope now on content creators that if, I mean, first of all, doing that is a crazy thing. What he did is he like vlogged this dead body and they're kind of mocking the person who died. It, I mean, they they touch his body. Like, it's not a good video. Yeah. He's obviously taken accountability. I think he has done a lot of growing and he apologized, you know, for it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like he recognized it was wrong, but that, that video is just as, horrifying today as it was in 2017 and i think if it was posted today i do think people would cover it immediately i don't think it would even be a question what do you, do think? you th i i feel like i'm of two minds of it because like i mean on the one hand i would say creators now are much more aware so they wouldn't do something well, he, like that. he wouldn't do something like that right he yeah. wouldn't do something like that but i don't know i just feel like there's just too much now that it's hard to kind of for something like to break through in the same way yeah but the, that's true but i do right and i think it's competing with like the war on gaza right would, mm -hmm. would that have been covered on cnn who knows but i mean the david dobrik scandal is another example and that was only two years ago i think when that broke the sexual assault stuff where he had mm -hmm. vlogged a sexual assault basically i mean that also was like all over the it, it's some of these content creators like it, the news does, I mean, you constantly see controversies go very viral. And I think it would have been worse and bigger today because at the time that that happened in 2017, there was no infrastructure for covering that sort of news. Mm -hmm. So mainstream media wrote about it and, and it was like, whoa, but like 
it was internet culture writers at these places or breaking news writers at these places. Now there's this whole network of websites and content creators and pundits that all they do is cover content creator drama. Mm -hmm. So I think like these controversies actually end up becoming bigger things on the internet. Would it have been on CNN? I don't know. I mean, you're right. It's like, there's so much news right now, but I do think that it would have made a big splash on the internet. Yeah. And I think that there's definitely a difference between like things that are generally bad to everyone versus like generally bad to people who are on TikTok. Yeah. Also, I think that the life cycle would be a lot shorter because that life cycle, like that was like three months of like nonstop coverage. Like I, I think now there's so much controversy online that like things do get cycled out a little bit more, but no, I mean, I could just imagine if he did that today and there was TikTok, that would be the discourse on the app for, I mean, it's such an egregious video that I think people would be like, what the hell? Yeah, you'd have to work really hard to get it out of your you page. <laughs> it would be just the topic of discussion. But I think like content creators now are so much more aware of their image. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's not forget Logan Paul was also running around Venice lassoing women and then saying he's not going to let them out of his rope until they kiss him, which is borderline, if not directly sexual assault. So 100%. Like, I think the stuff that was acceptable in the mid 2010s, we also just don't consider acceptable. And these creators know better because they they anticipate backlash. Yeah, that gets to, to the idea of all of the like YouTube houses and like all the pranks that everyone was doing and yeah, yeah, kind of out of fashion now, I guess. Yeah, I think people are just like, this is bad, like, or you're like terrorizing someone, you know, what's really popular now is like still this sort of extreme content, but it's more like, it's not like problematic extreme, it's more like yeah, like I made mashed potatoes and shrimp in an airplane bathroom or whatever, you know, like I did something (laughs) disgusting or horrible or like something like that, where it's like, there's still shock value, but it's not problematic in the same, it's it's just sort of harmless. Yeah, that's not like interpersonal, quote unquote, crime. It's more like breaking a rule or a social norm. And you can look at this also just like look at the evolution of Mr. Beast, right? He used to use a lot of unhoused people in his content and would essentially exploit unhoused people for views. He doesn't do that anymore. Now it's like, oh, look, I'm curing the blind or I locked myself in a cube for 20 days. You know, it's more like either inspirational content or sort of he's putting himself through hell. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, let's pivot to some of the things you've been recently writing about. So let's talk about the, uh, kids online safety act, really light content topic. (laughs) Um, so for folks not in the U S or even for those who like, don't know, can you kind of give us a bit of a a quick Coles notes version of what the online. Yeah. It's a really scary piece of legislation. It's this. It's this, I mean, don't let the name fool you. As with all bills with these types of names, um, you know, like anti-terrorism bill or whatever, like they're never about what they ostensibly claim to be about. Um, In this case, a bunch of lawmakers have come together to what they wanna do is essentially put all of these restrictions on what kids are allowed to see and post online before they turn 18. There's this effort in America to get kids, like basically cut off kids below the age of 18 from free access to the internet and free expression. 
it's specifically aimed at targeting LGBTQ kids. I mean, Marsha Blackburn, one of the co-sponsors of the bill, said that this bill is going to help eradicate the transgender in this culture and that, that kids are being indoctrinated through social media into the LGBTQ cult, basically. And, um, you know, it, it has horrifying free speech implications. It's a very dangerous piece of legislation, in my opinion. And um, it it has enormous harm. I mean, once again, it's led these platforms to kind of crack down on any kind of social commentary. You saw Meta in sort of response to this saying, we're actually going to just cut off political, anything controversial. So that means anything about women's reproductive rights, anything about the LGBTQ issues, anything about the war happening right now in the Middle East, like um, anything like that is is now censored. And I, I just think it's incredibly dangerous. It hurts news organizations. And this notion that teenagers shouldn't have autonomy is really dangerous because you see the people like where these bills are emerging are places like Florida and Utah, which are very far right states in America where like they're, you know, the goal is to cut kids off from information about the world and specifically about progressive things like LGBTQ, you know, kids exploring their gender identity. And so it's very dangerous. And I, it drives me crazy that nobody cares. I don't know how to make people care. I mean, it passed the Senate, which is terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's going to go to the House now, um, or it passed the House and it's going to the Senate. I can't even remember which, but whatever. I think it was, I think it was the Senate. Anyway, whatever. It's bad. I am very scared of what it could mean. We saw a similar bill. Well, it's called FOSTA SESTA. Basically, it was this crackdown on ostensibly protecting kids from human trafficking. What it was, it was a crackdown on sex workers online and, and sort of sexual content online. And it well, it actually made it more dangerous. It made it so that more young women are trafficked now because they can't operate through open platforms on the mm -hmm. internet. So they have to go through these back channels where they're more likely to be exploited. And um, yeah, now we're seeing, I, I think it's really scary. I mean, as a journalist, I care deeply about free speech and free expression. And I think we are in a terrifying, terrifying place where the far right, first of all, they don't care about free speech. All they talk okay. about is free speech. Meanwhile, they want to censor every single person that disagrees mm -hmm. with them. Elon Musk, great example yes, of this. 100%. And then on the left, you have this moral panic over disinformation where people are like, oh my God, this has to be, we need these platforms to crack down on disinformation. Absolutely in no way should we expect these social platforms to be the arbiters of disinformation. We've seen time and time again that they're completely unprepared and unqualified to do that. So it's really scary to me that we ask them to do this. I don't think that they should be policing disinformation personally because I've seen it just go so wrong. And you see real reporting get removed. I mean, look at the fact that Kat Tenbarge's article on revenge porn was censored from search on threads inst on, on Instagram because it had the word porn in the URL. <laughs> okay. It's, that's what they do. And, and the fact that threads and Instagram blocked searches for COVID during the mm -hmm. second biggest COVID surge, they blocked searches, uh, they blocked the word, they blocked the word vaccine and vaccinations so that people yeah. couldn't find information online. And then they linked to an out of date page on the CDC's website, which had misinformation. Ugh. And no one puts out more misinformation than governments, by the way, let yeah. me just say that as a journalist, all we do, the, the government is a political entity, and they're constantly pushing narratives not just under Trump, of course, Trump lied about the election, mm -hmm. but these, sorry to like rant about this, but like <laughs> the, 
social platforms, when you ask them to police disinformation, they rely on what the government says because they don't want to get regulated. And the government lies yeah. about everything. Yeah, I mean, not then, everything, but tons of things, you know? Well, and then, it's, and then these platforms, they're not dissimilar to the government because they're also at the whim of whoever's making the decisions. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing. It's like you might want the government and Facebook to crack down on misinformation because you think that Joe Biden is president and that's fine. What about when Trump's president? <laughs> what about like what about exactly. when somebody that you completely disagree with is president? And by the way, Biden puts out tons of misinformation. Part of what we do as journalists is fact check government entities, which constantly they are political bodies. They're putting out political narratives. And it's to rely on that as fact is deranged. I it really grinds my gears. And I don't think journalists care about it. I don't think they actually care about free speech and free expression. I'm very disappointed. It's weird. The only people that actually seem to care about it, like, are, are libertarians because they're yeah. sort of morally consistent and they care about it in this very maximalist way where you're like, okay, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that the mental gymnastics that the far right does to convince themselves of, you know, they deserve free speech, but other people don't because it yeah. hurts their feelings or what have you. And then kids don't deserve free speech, even though in theory, the law, same laws apply to them. Yeah, and LGBTQ people don't deserve free speech. Yeah. We should run them off the internet. And women don't deserve free speech yeah. or autonomy online. I mean, it's big. Or any autonomy, really. <laughs> right. But liberals are just as bad, I have to say. I have to say, like, I'm very disappointed. I mean, Richard Blumenthal is a liberal Democrat who's backed this bill. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's this, what it is is that they're they're exploiting sort of parental fear about technology and mm -hmm. and so these it's like parents don't really know how to deal with the internet and instead of them having these tough conversations with kids and educating yes. parents about yes. how to properly you know engage with your kids and make sure you know what they're doing on the internet it's like let's ask the federal government to pass laws to mm -hmm. keep my kid it just that oh, it seems yeah. like such government overreach to me and it's, yeah. I think it's very concerning, and I wish that more journalists cared about these issues, and I don't think most of them do, and that because they're busy with other things. I totally get it. Most people don't cover social media, but it's going to have implications for their work, and so I think it's important to pay But attention. so many of them do cover Congress, right? Like, Yeah, but those people are just... Well, that's, and it's not the sexy thing that like is the news of the day either. Well, people that cover Congress need to maintain their sources in Congress. And so I understand that. I mean, I covered politics for two years. It's very hard to speak out about specific pieces of legislation when it's not your beat and your beat is actually just to cover these Congress people. So sure. But I think people that cover the internet and people that cover tech and pe people that cover LGBTQ issues should talk about the implications of this stuff. And a lot of LGBTQ journalists actually have spoken out about it. Um, but I think, I just think there needs to be more public awareness. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's it. I love talking about nerdy politics stuff. <laughs> oh my God. Thanks for listening to me like rant about my five, my like random shit. <laughs> but... um, thank you so much for chatting with me. It was a pleasure as always. <laughs> thank you so much. And um, it was so great chatting with you. And thank you so much for reading my book. I really, I, that means so much. That does it for this week. A huge thank you to Taylor for chatting with me. And of course, a huge thank you to everyone who listens each week. I appreciate you deeply. I'll be back in a few weeks. And in the meantime, you can find me on social media and at intertech.news. Mm -hmm.